break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 11th of February, 2022. Happy Friday to everyone who is out there. In listener land. And of course, we're very happy to be back with you. And we've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about a massive poison risk in California related to agribusiness. We're going to be talking about the ongoing struggle in Sudan. And before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to start with recent revelations regarding CIA spying on Americans. Yesterday, Senators Ron Wyden of Oregon and Martin Heinrich of New Mexico released a declassified letter they had sent to the Director of National Intelligence, or DNI, Avril Haines, and the Director of the CIA, William Burns, in April of last year about a previously secret CIA bulk surveillance program that, like the more well-known NSA programs, has collected, retained, and it appears used the information of Americans whose communications were unrelated to any criminal or intelligence targeting, the so-called incidental collections, and that it's doing so in ways that are potentially illegal and ongoing. Wyden and Heinrich are calling for significant declassifications of reports on this program in a way that suggests they feel there's wrongdoing which needs to be brought to light. The letter, which is heavily redacted, seems to suggest the program has been going on since 2013 or 2014, and in the words of the two senators was, quote, entirely outside the statutory framework that Congress and the public believe govern this collection and without any of the judicial, congressional, or even executive branch oversight that comes from Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act collection, end quote. The letter from the senators was released alongside a declassification of certain elements of various oversight reports that came out between 2015 and 2021. And from those documents, as well as the letter, we can surmise that the issues boil down to whether the CIA program keeping a database of communications violates the constitutional rights of American citizens and if they are using the database in a way that also undermines those rights. The two senators are demanding more information be released to allow the public to determine this, but the CIA is resisting, so we still know relatively little. To fully understand all this, it's important to have some context. Prior to Edward Snowden's revelations, the government had tried to imply that it used its broad spying powers both sparingly and in a very targeted manner. The documents released by Snowden showed the opposite, that in fact they were all quote-unquote bulk collection programs. In other words, the government hoovered up huge amounts of telecommunications traffic, calls, emails, search histories, texts, etc., and then was using the huge database of all of these various communications to search for whatever foreign intelligence targets the government was looking for, or, as Snowden revealed, searching for, quite frankly, just about anything with very little safeguards. 
The way the government gathers the information through the trunk lines that move internet traffic into and out of countries and through the data centers of major telecommunications companies mean billions of communications on average everyday people are collected in addition to whatever they may or may not be looking for. The government calls this quote-unquote incidental to hide the fact that they are constantly surveilling the vast majority of telecommunications traffic on the entire planet, including that of American citizens, without any sort of warrant that one would normally need to look at these sorts of communications. Following Snowden's revelations, Congress has pushed forward some tepid attempts to address this by trying to tighten the rules around what can be collected, how long it can be held for, and for what reason it can be held, who it can be shared with, and what rules govern how the broader database can be searched, and when during that process a warrant must be sought from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that governs these sorts of national security warrants. These rules are set out in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. The changes made by Congress have been extremely limited and still allow the government to collect essentially all communications of all people anywhere on Earth at any time without any sort of warrant. It just tries to limit how that information is used once collected. And as numerous reports by intelligence authorities themselves have revealed, the NSA and the FBI in particular frequently abuse and overstep their authority. And the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court warrant process operates more like a rubber stamp than real oversight. So what Wyden and Heinrich seem to be looking to bring to light is that the CIA is collecting a lot of quote-unquote incidental communications of U.S. citizens, then searching the database for other things without ever receiving any sort of warrant or authorization as they would be required to if they were operating under the FISA statutes that govern electronic surveillance. And that is further implied by the authority the CIA is claiming to do this under, Executive Order 12333, which was issued by President Reagan, in the 1980s, and that is basically the umbrella legal authorization for what the intelligence community is, what the various entities do, and some broad outlines of what they cannot do as well. The CIA notes in its press release on this issue they feel most of their activities fall outside of FISA. By claiming only the executive order and downplaying FISA, clearly the CIA is looking for a much bigger gray area for its activities, since the executive order is broad and in many ways nonspecific. The deeper implication of this, and most likely why Wyden and Heinrich are making a big deal about it, is that the logical inference is the CIA is looking to reserve the authority to go on random fishing expeditions of Americans' communications for one reason or another, which in and of itself would mean the CIA is interpreting a broad range of American individuals and organizations as quote-unquote foreign assets without any real evidence at all, hence why they would want to avoid having to limit their database or seek warrants to search it. One other little wrinkle here that speaks to this point is, in 2017, when the CIA issued its new guidelines about how it was doing various surveillance things, in addition to noting new rules around electronic surveillance, they clarified their guidelines about when CIA officers can engage with U.S. organizations secretly, that is, undercover, pretending to not be CIA officers. And this is exactly why the declassification issue is very important. While we don't know, even the tiny bit we do know implies the CIA is subjecting an unknown number of people and groups to illegal surveillance on what most likely is political grounds linked to their legal activity advocating around foreign policy issues. We will have to see when or if more documents are declassified. They clearly should be immediately to reveal what sort of unlawful secret police actions might be being carried out against groups in the U.S. acting totally lawfully. <laughs> Thursday of this week marked another day of mass protest across Sudan against the military regime that's been ruling the country following a coup last October. 
The protests have continued to take place despite an increasing level of oppression by the government against the protest movement and journalists. At least 80 have been killed and over 2,000 injured, and hundreds have been detained in the months since the coup that have been marked by multiple waves of huge mass protest spanning the country. Yesterday's marches followed a wave of protests on Monday that saw 63 injuries as government forces used their now regular playbook of bullets, beatings, and tear gas. Yesterday's protests also faced repression, and this week's protests have put close focus on the hundreds of detainees. In Northern State, a protester was killed after a trucker ran a blockade set up by area resistance committees to pressure the government to rescind electricity price hikes and income inequality. The government has attempted to dismantle the blockade, but the people of the area keep putting them back up, and other resistance committees from around the country are sending forces to back them up. The government also has arrested three former members of the Empowerment Removal Committee, an entity tasked with clawing back the money and assets taken through state corruption over the past few decades. And that move, the arrest, has drawn international condemnation and comes alongside the return to office of a number of officials from the government that fell in 2019 after mass protests led by many of the same forces leading the movement now. As we've reported to you for over a month, this all adds up to a situation of stalemate on the ground. The movement is demanding a total removal of the military forces from power, and the de facto military government is insisting on maintaining their central role in power, so the gap appears to be unbridgeable there. The military government seems to be moving away from any serious negotiations and essentially calling the bluff of Western nations and Gulf states who have been criticizing them, although they are long-term supporters. These entities backed the military in 2019 in dumping the former government and setting up a new government with a quote-unquote civilian component to make it look more democratic. But that was really designed to set up a reliable entity that would be willing to carry out austerity, normalization of relations with Israel, and reaffirming all the various business deals the previous government had done with the Gulf states. The coup in October made a mockery of the claims of these Western powers and their allies to be supporting a quote-unquote democratic transition in Sudan, and they've been scrambling, with the help of the UN, to try to restore some semblance of the pre-coup status quo of a military government with limited backing from some political forces. They've been very careful, however, not to endorse the idea of a full-on civilian government like what the Sudanese protest movement is demanding. Clearly, given the presence of socialist, communists, and other radicals in the protest movement, and the existence of various political forces with a history of resisting total Western and Gulf legitimacy in the protest movement as well, clearly these countries, the West, the Gulf states, are worried the basic pillars of what they want, normalization with Israel, austerity politics, the backing of the Saudi-UAE war in Yemen, and business deals with the Gulf nations more broadly, could be in trouble if there was anything approaching real democracy set up in the country. Recently, the United States has escalated its rhetoric with some senators stating they are very willing to pass laws imposing sanctions on the military if they don't quickly try to bring in some subset of the political world in Sudan to try to at least act like they are still for a quote-unquote democratic transition. And this is what we mean by calling a bluff. It seems the military is more or less daring these international forces to withdraw their support and risk losing their newly acquired partner or just acquiesce to their attempts to crush the protest movement and get the austerity relations with Israel and the Gulf states that they are looking to maintain. In the short term, there is no doubt that this means more bloodshed in the streets as the movement against the coup continues to hold and plan marches throughout the month of February. An alarming new report from the Environmental Working Group has detailed that between 2015 and 2020, a staggering 32 million pounds of toxic pesticides, including many linked to cancer 
and respiratory and development problems have been used on Ventura County, California agricultural lands. The Environmental Working Group details that, quote, these exposures threaten hundreds of thousands and put farm workers and their families at the greatest health risk. Going on further to note that, quote, almost 70 percent of all homes in Ventura are within two and a half miles of an agricultural operation where pesticides are regularly sprayed with more than one in four homes located within a half a mile of farm fields. And even worse, they note, quote, especially alarmingly, 33 public elementary schools in the county are located within a quarter mile of farming operations where pesticides are sprayed. Several pesticides used in Ventura are linked to serious health problems, including harm to children's development, end quote. There are 40,000 farm workers in Ventura, 92% of whom are Latino, and of course, they are even more overexposed to everyone else in the county as they toil to produce the $2 billion of produce that comes out of Ventura every year. The Environmental Working Group also notes that, quote, policies currently in place to protect public health rely primarily on voluntary compliance and efforts to force better compliance by hiking the fines that state regulators could charge agricultural operations for violating pesticide rules died in the California legislature in 2018. Industry lobbying helped to tank a bill that would have given state officials the power to charge $25,000 for serious rule violations, up from the $5,000 that county agricultural commissioners can currently levy. And again, as we noted earlier, as we just keep wanting to emphasize here, the Environmental Working Group points out that, quote, epidemiological studies conducted in California found that living near pesticide spraying is linked to harm to the respiratory system, increased risk of cancer, and harm to the developing child, such as low birth weight and reduced IQ. Undoubtedly, Ventura is not an isolated county, nor is California an isolated state. Studies like this should be a red flag warning about how dangerous the processes of agribusiness really are. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 